You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If I could tell you this in a single sitting, then you might believe all of it, even the strangest part even the part about what I found in the hedgerow. If I could unwind this story in a single spool, or peel it like an apple the way Mammy would with her penknife in one unbroken coil, juicer glistening on the blade, then you might bite in without objection. But Mammy always said we have lost the art of listening. She said we live in an age when everyone chatters and no one takes heed, and that, she said, is not a good time in which to live. And while I offer you my story unbroken like the apple peel, it hangs by a fibre at every turn of the knife. When you come to know the nature of the teller of this tale, you may have good reason to doubt both. You may suspect the balance of my mind, and you may condemn my position. You may start to disbelieve. Perhaps I once was mad. Briefly, perhaps that much is true. And this, in an age where we no longer have the patience to listen, may cause you to break off, to give up on me, to turn away. A young woman has so little of interest to offer, after all. A young woman of unsteady temper, even less. What they did to Mammy, they tried to do to me. They released the dogs. And when it comes to telling how it was done, I only ask this. When doubt wrinkles your brow, when incomprehension clouds your eyes, when distaste rests like a rank fog on your lips, then think how we few have held our tongues for so long, how we have choked back the truth, how we have burned in our hearts rather than risked the telling. And when you feel most far from me, then at that moment listen hard, not to your thoughts, which will mislead you, nor to your heart, which will lie, but to the voice behind the voice, and trust the tale and not the teller. Graham Joyce is the author of the novels The Facts of Life and The Limits of Enchantment. Welcome to the show, Graham. Howdy. Graham, your novels seem to be about borderlands crossing from one state of mind to another. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you use symbols and icons to excavate the psychological state of your characters. Well, it it always sounds grand to talk about symbols and icons, but and it is exactly what I do, and it goes back really to the experiences I had as a child when I was learning about some very strange things about life from my from my grandmother. She became the prototype for the figure of Martha in the facts of life and my own grandmother had some of those experiences that I describe in that book. I mean she had I don't know what you want to call them prophetic dreams or experiences which in which she, she would she would have visitors from some place I don't know what was going on there I'm not sure whether I believe it myself or whether I uh, whether I reject it or whether I accept it and I keep shuttling between those two positions but the truth is that she reported certain things to me and she would have dreams in which old archetypes or symbols for example of death the old symbol of death is the is the old ma- the, the the reaper cutting the grass with a enormous scythe. Well, my grandmother would dream of a man with a lawnmower. And it really is just an updating of that old symbol and that old imagery. But it was only later, when I came to be a writer, I realised what was going on in her mind and how she was apprehending the world. Your work deals a lot with 
altered states of consciousness, either artificially induced, sometimes through drugs, sometimes through extreme emotional experiences. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you use those altered states of consciousness and how you try use that to try to get at the characters, the core of what your characters are doing. Yes, you're right. I mean, I'll use anything that's going to try and get that state, whether it be dreaming, drugs, uh, madness, altered states of any kind, really, because they represent to me a kind of crack between the worlds. This world where quotidian and banal uh, can li- live side by side with the miraculous, and that just occasionally the miraculous pokes through into this world and then disappears very rapidly. And it's a way of treating the fantastic, which is which is rather different from the standard method of looking at the, the, the fantastic as something that has to be defeated or overcome. And often I'm trying to see it as something which is there to be achieved, even momentarily. I don't know, I've always... I've always found that there are images available in you know some of the very ordinary things of life. I started one book with some boys sitting with their feet in the water, enjoying a sunny day, and a, and a pike pops up out of the, the water and, and bites off the toes of one of these little boys. And I mean, this, this sort of thing can actually happen in freshwater lakes and, and rivers of England where pikes are very common, basically a freshwater shark. But when I'd heard that this had happened to someone, I was thinking about it, and it seemed to me that a pond can very easily be a symbol of the mind itself and the depths of the water, a symbol of the unconscious mind, and this creature, beautiful and terrifying and dangerous, appearing briefly from under the water, sparkling in the sunlight and retreating back again, is a good symbol of the nature of and the destructiveness of the the creative mind itself. So I'm constantly looking for those border positions that allow the miraculous to just pop through into this world and show itself and then retreat. The novel you're talking about is The Tooth Fairy. That's right. Which was quite a famous novel. And what's interesting to me is that later on, when the Tooth Fairy presents itself to the character, its looks echo that of the pike, don't they? They do indeed, and you're one of the very few people who've made that connection. The Tooth Fairy herself is exactly the same colours as the pike. She has teeth sharpened to points. She actually is the pike, as far as the boy is concerned. She's a re-manifestation of a traumatic experience. We're talking about the main character in the book who witnessed the appearance of the pike. He was the only person that saw it, and he spends the rest of his life almost trying to face up to what happened to him when he was a boy. And that same beauty and terror is always popping into his life. It's just popping out of the water almost, popping out of his own unconscious mind. So, yes, that's the model. That book is a fascinating excavation using some nice supernatural techniques to get at the mind of an adolescent boy. Could you tell us how you achieve that? Oh, how I achieve it, I don't know, but I can say what I'm trying to do, and that is use the supernatural in a, in a rather different way. Uh, most supernatural books, as I said earlier, are, uh, the whole business is predicated on defeating and uh, overcoming some supernatural intrusion into this life, whereas I'm, I'm less interested in that. I'm more interested in it just being a quality of our lives. It's a thread that's always there, and it's it's not there to be defeated. It's It's there to be experienced, even if we don't know exactly what it is that's doing it. And I tend to use the appearance of the supernatural 
as a manifestation of some character's psychic distress. So once again, that supernatural pushes their psyche into an extreme place and then doors begin to open and new possibilities emerge for the way that people might understand the the world. So it's a model of psychic distress in the particular case of the tooth fairy. It's the angst, if you like, of the average adolescent male. And even though it sounds extreme to say it, I think a lot of lot of boys have a very tough time during early adolescence in trying to make that negotiation from boyhood to adulthood. And adolescence these days is stretched out and kids aren't given the recognition and the respect and responsibility that they really need to make that jump. And so what we give them is a, is a hell time for a couple of years. I mean, the, there's a serious level to this. There's a dreadful suicide rate for boys, you know, at that particular time. And I, I suppose I was looking at that whole period of, of psychic distress for for the, the adolescent male and using that supernatural as a kind of manifestation of it. You incorporate a number of your own experiences into your novels, don't you? I do, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about where you come from, the English Midlands? It plays kind of an important part in your fiction. I want to kind of set that backdrop up. Okay. Well, the first thing to say is that I'm from a a mining village. My dad was a coal miner for uh, most of his life. He's retired now. The village is just outside Coventry, which is a car town. They make Jaguars and, and various other cars. Oh, they didn't tell recently. And it's a Midlands, quite gritty industrial place that once was a, a rather beautiful medieval and Georgian city until it got completely flattened during the during the war. A blitz overnight blitz raid just turned it to dust. And so what was a beautiful and, and kind of heritage rosette city is now a rather unlovely modern place that was built very, very rapidly. I mean, it had to be built very rapidly after the bombing raids. So it's a gritty place. It's not a pretentious place. It's a kind of tough place. But I associate with it very strongly. I hear the voice of my characters coming from there, and I enjoy setting novels there and thereabouts. And I like giving, offering the stories of these Midlands people, which I regard as the deepest, darkest heart of England. The oldest stories of, of England are from the Midlands. I mean, there's Lady Godiva and there's Robin Hood, and there are many local stories that that come out of the Midlands, but it's not a place that gets represented about England very much. I mean, you know, you'll hear about London and you'll hear about Edinburgh up in Scotland, but you'd hear very little about these towns, and yet they've got a richness, even though they, the, the bombed city of Coventry looks very modern. It's got a very deep, long history, and the people there have a, a character that's been created by that history, and it's something of that that I try to write about. One of the interesting things that you do is to observe the tensions within people and how that tension can generate a dissonance. And one of your most interesting books in this regard is Requiem. You make a connection in that book between the expression of religious feelings and the expression of sexual feelings. Okay. At first glance, it might seem an odd connection, connecting up the religious and the sexual. But the whole Judeo-Christian ethos is based on an apprehension or a misapprehension of sexuality. I spent a lot of time researching the Bible for that particular novel. And I have to say that I was horrified by the misogynistic nature of much of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. 
It, the whole thing seems predicated on some weird, twisted hatred of women. And that's a strong thing to say, but the evidence is there for anybody who actually wants to go and look at it. The way that it talks about women, the way that it describes treatment of women, the horror and distaste for bodily functions, particularly women's bodily functions, is just, is just very, very unpleasant. It's not the, the stuff that's usually pulled out of the Bible, but it's there for anybody who actually wants to read it cover to cover. The whole issue about uh, virgin birth, miracles, is intimately connected with this this whole stream. That's why I set that novel in Jerusalem and wanted to explore again another character whose psyche was in deep distress, having to deal with some of the inherent contradictions in in the message of Christianity in particular, and the contradictions of the human heart and attitudes towards sex in general. So that's where that whole thing come from. Your new novel, The Limits of Enchantment, offers a fascinating look at the Midlands and a look at the tradition of midwifery, the long tradition of midwifery, and some of the traditions of herbal medicine and what I think is called hedgerow magic. Yes, that's right. Tell us what a hedgerow is first. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and then tell us a little bit about some of the research you did to bring these characters to life and, and set up the book for us a little bit. Okay. Well, firstly, just to clear up what a hedgerow is, because it's a distinct feature of the English countryside. After the countryside was, was enclosed, that is, the common land where people used to graze their, their cattle and their sheep, after it was enclosed and quartered off and privatized, if you like, farmers uh, used to divide up their fields with by planting bushes, rows of bushes. There would be distinctive types of bushes which were intertwined, deliberately intertwined, to make barriers so that animals couldn't stray from one field to the other. Over centuries, this became, and still is, a distinctive feature of the English field. And one of the, one of the fallouts of, of making hedgerows is it provided shelter for other smaller plants that would then root themselves along the hedgerows. So the hedgerows themselves had a, a rich growth of varied plants, and there were certain people, often wise women before the time of doctors, who would go and select these various plants and herbs that were growing along the hedgerows and use them medicinally. And these became known as hedgerow witches. So that's the whole connection with the hedgerow. But just to set up the, the, the business of the novel of The Limits of Enchantment, it's the story of an old and a young midwife set in the 1960s. And though I never use the word in the book, these women are hedgerow witches. They're really old-fashioned midwives who have knowledge of herbs. That's all I mean by hedgerow witch. They have knowledge of herbs. Now, I deliberately set the book in 1966, which was just before the availability of abortion for women, because although these women were midwives, they would also offer abortificants from the hedgerow to young women who'd got themselves into a, this condition and they needed some help. The only other alternative was to go to a backstreet abortionist. So the midwives were respected and feared by the local community. Uh, the community needed them, but these people were outcasts. They live on the margins of the community. As I say, although I don't ever use the word witch in the book, they're regarded in that way by the community. They wield a power, an unspoken power, over the men in the community, don't they? 
They do indeed. They have the power because they know who is responsible for the condition <laughs> that brings the girls to their door because they make it a point of never helping anybody unless they spill the beans, basically. And they tell them who's the father of this child and then they talk with them and counsel them and get them to come to a decision whether they want to go ahead with this. But they always keep that information in their heads and they need this information. They need this information because they know that they're feared by the men. Could you talk a little bit about the Freemasons and how they play into this novel? Right. Well, Freemasonry is a very strange organization in in England. Oh, actually, it's an international organization, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in England in particular, uh, though they deny it, it's a, it's a semi-secretive society of men that uh, help each other out in business, in times of difficulty. But it's actually an organization of the pretty exclusively the rich and powerful or people in public office. Now, I set them up in a book. I was having a bit of fun with this, I must admit, but I set them up in, in the book in in a kind of organized opposition to the confederacy of the of these hedgerow witches. And um, they're deadly enemies. They're deadly enemies. Tell us a little bit about your previous book, The Facts of Life. In a way, it almost seems that Mammy could be one of the daughters out of The Facts of Life. Oh yes, she could indeed. I suppose there is a there is a, a connecting up there. There's also there's also a midwife in the facts of life. If you remember the character of Raggy Annie, right? Uh, uh, but I, she was a comic figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I wanted to do with the character of Raggy Annie was take her out of the comic situation and treat her con- situation rather more seriously. But the connection I think you're alluding to is the fact that somehow these books have become very much about women. Yes. <laughs> these are books about women and even I've used the, you know, written this The Limits of Enchantment in a woman's voice. It's the first time I've done that, incidentally. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I'm I'm kind of writing all my novels about women at the moment, but it just seems to be something that's emerged. I don't know why I felt the need to give greater voice to women's issues. These things sometimes, you know, they they present themselves to you. It's not as if I made a choice, a conscious choice to go down this road, but it's something that's come and knocked on the door. I don't know, maybe it's trying to tell me something about my own life. Uh, But there it is. Did you just sit down to write the facts of life and it turned out to be about women? Yeah, I, I guess it did that way. I mean, there's clearly something going on in in that I... I I do have a fascination with women, you know. Uh, um, I regard them as both mad and beautiful at the same time, and maybe these books are a kind of exploration of that madness and beauty. I don't know. But in the case of The Facts of Life, I grew up with all these aunts, so their, their kind of femininity and, you know, the smell of talcum powder that they used to use in those days was always around the house in these floral skirts. And just as a boy growing up uh, with so many aunts, they just had a, quite an impact on me. So in in one sense, the facts of life is semi-autobiographical. Some of those women, crazy as they seem, were actually my aunts. I can say this, they're, they're mostly all dead now, but, you know, they, they, were, they were a pretty crazy bunch. And they were incredibly different. All these sisters were wonderfully warm, uh, caring, compassionate, and sometimes bickering and squabbling. And it was that, I don't know, that gang 
of women that used to come together and they would sit down together and drink tea and talk stories, offer great stories, and they would laugh together. And sometimes they would fall out with each other. And it was something of that warm place, that, that I don't know, that, that primal hearth that I wanted to talk about in that. So it inevitably ended up with being a, a, a big exploration of all these women. I had a, almost an embarrassment of riches in that novel. Sometimes you write a, a novel and you've got your main character and your secondary characters can stay a little bit flat on the page. And it doesn't matter what you do to try and breathe some life into them. They, they won't support as well. But in this particular case, I had these these women crowding to around me to be heard almost as, as if they were they were they were falling out with each other about who was going to be the main character. And I really had to control that and 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 keep that in check and stay with my my red line for the story because it it threatened to become seven different novels. You know, each of those characters could have had their own novel written oh, about yes. them. Um, so lively were they and, and chattering in my ear when I wanted to write about something. I felt like, you know, some sort of spiritualist medium or something when I had to be putting these voices back in a line, you know, saying, just hang on a minute, I'll come to you in a while. And so I had this wonderful embarrassment of riches in the, the models of, of these beautiful aunts, beautiful, kind aunts, and wanted to wanted to deal with that. And I think probably what it did was then trigger off the next novel, which was recognising that got to be an even deeper exploration of this delicate and beautiful condition of almost a neurosis that some, one or two of these, these women were, were in. I've got a feeling that most families are, are dysfunctional and, and, and this word neurotic is not always helpful, that, that maybe we're all a little bit neurotic somehow. And I think I was exploring that condition in, in women in particular. One of the things that's striking about that novel is the variety of life that's in it. And you do this a lot in all your novels. There's a lot of humor. Could you talk about how the humor it rises up out of this psychic stew that you create? Oh, right. Well, I mean, it, this this is um, fundamental to my view of, of life and the kind of novels I want to write. I think I think life is full of horror and humor. That's life. That's life, you know. Everybody's going to die. The loved ones are going to die. There's plenty of horror in it. I mean, I won't even begin to talk about the, you know, the horrors that are out there in the world. But one of the mechanisms mechanisms that we as human beings have evolved is this strange business of humor. And you know, my dad in particular he had, a, he had a tough job as a coal miner and everything, but he was always buoyant, and he always had a ready humor for, for everybody. And when I think back, you know, what a cushy life I have compared to his life, I, I you know, I wonder if I've got, ever got any right to grumble. But, you know, he was an ebullient person who loved a joke, and he, he loved to... Um, see people laugh and set people laughing. And it's a quality to be admired, as long as it's not a kind of grim way of uh, facing up to the gallows, then it's something that I want to evoke. I want to make my readers laugh. If I can, I want to make my readers laugh. If I can, I want to make them cry as well. If I ever get close to doing those two things in a book, I think that I've achieved something. So I set out to write you know, both the horror and the humor of life. That's, that's one of my targets. You've recently and before done some young adult novels. Yeah. You uh, worked with Simon Spanton over at uh, Orion to do the 
web novels, Spider Bite, and, but you have a, a more recent novel. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. The reason I've written this really is because I wasn't entirely satisfied with Spider Bite. I felt that I was slightly condescending to the young people I was writing it for, by which I mean I was kind of writing down. And I didn't do that. I didn't do that uh, consciously. It was just that there was a kind of stiffness about the book that was caused by, well, writing in a completely new genre for me. So I always felt slightly dissatisfied and wanted to write a kind, a young adult novel which was more like my adult novels and that would only be different in that you, there's, there's a less explicit things going on in the in the young adult novel. So I had a chance to write this novel, which I've called Twoc, T-W-O-C. Now, this is judicial slang for um, the criminal offence of taking without owner's consent. This is bizarre English law. If I steal your car and I park it up the hill, I haven't stole... I haven't... Uh, I won't get done for theft. I'll get done for taking without owner's consent, which is a lesser offence. It's not to you. You're still just as mad about it, but what we call joyriders are, are charged with the crime of twock, and so consequently the police and lawyers and probation officers and juvenile justice administrators refer to these kids as twockers. You know, we've got, a, we've got a few twockers in the cell at the moment and so on. I wanted to write about a, a boy who has been in trouble with the law for um, his enthusiasm for fast cars and because of his skills at getting into them, who, just like the characters in my other novels, is undergoing an extreme form of psychic distress. In his particular case, he's like most kids. He thinks he's got it sorted. He talks the talk and he thinks he walks the walk. And he's very articulate and very smart, but he doesn't know anything. And everybody else knows that and the reader knows that. He's falling apart. And I find that it's often the case with, again, going back to this subject about boys, you know, the, the pressure to look cool is there but they're not making a very good fist of life. And so this gave me a, a chance to explore another another condition. Let's talk a little bit about the way you unsentimentally get to people. How does this start? Ooh, this is a tough question. Uh, for me, a book will always start with a scene. And with I can't think of characters until I hear their voices talking. Right, I mean, that comes first. I have to put them in a scene and hear them talking. When they start yakking, they come alive. But I'll have a vague scene, and it will be ill-formed in my mind, rather misty, but as I think about it, it starts to parachute towards me, and as it's parachuting towards me, it's becoming clearer and clearer. And then I'll start writing it, and as I start writing it, the parachute starts to accelerate towards me and I get a, a, um, a stronger impression of my character in the scene that that character's in and then it, everything will develop from there. They will do something in that scene uh, which I can use to then create the next scene. So for me, writing comes from writing. There's nothing happening outside of writing. I'm not one of these people who goes around... Well, in fact, I don't think many writers actually go around with a big story in their heads just thinking, if only I could get to the typewriter or the computer, I could drop this down right now. Uh, instead, it, when I say writing comes from writing, is that the ideas come from the ideas, if that doesn't sound too strange. You have to create something first and work into it, and then more will come. 
it's a bit like I always use the the image of coal mining, probably because of my background. Is that it's it's there to be hacked out, but you don't know what it is. You don't know what the quality of it is. And some days, like my dad used to say, you used to hack at the stuff and swear and bleed, and the stuff just wouldn't come out, which was was heartbreaking. On uh, because they, in the old days they used to be paid what was called piecework by you know what coal they got out I mean, he says another day you would reach for a funny looking straw that was in the wall of coal pull it out and it would all come tumbling out and you'd go tee hee hee and start shoveling into the truck and you'd get paid a lot that day and it's like that with writing uh, you don't know exactly you clock on and you get into it and then you don't know exactly what's going to come out that day but you sit there and i sit there until i've done, done my word count so that's the only way i can describe it i make one hack at the hack at the wall, and see what's going to come out. If it's a good day, it will generate lots of fine ideas and talking characters. If it's a bad day, they're just going to be flat on the page. You just go back and do it the next day. Tell us a little bit about some of the business of writing. How do you think about it? Do you think about genre? Do you think about where it's going to be shelved in the bookstore? Or No, I've never, I've never given that any thought, and that's why I'm in trouble most of the time with booksellers and publishers. I mean, I give them a problem every time I send I send them a book because you know yourself these books have been marketed as fantasy in some places and just as mainstream fiction in others. It's not the publisher's fault, it's my fault. People don't know where to categorise these books. Fantasy readers, I think, must pick these books up and think, that's not what it said on the tin. It's not, you know, the full fantasy. It's There are no, there are no elves or dragons or no, there are no high fantasy sword and sorcery things going on in my books I and mean, they're all contemporary settings for one thing but there is an element of the fantastical which is why they're sometimes marketed as fantasy and that sometimes puts off a mainstream reader just that I, that very idea but that's what it is that's what I do and that's what I get and I've, I've managed to get away with it from publishers for, for a long time now fortunately, luckily and uh, because I've had the support from, you know, good publishers, good editors who've said, well, we're not really sure what this is and we're going to have a problem when we put it on the bookshelves, but we're going to do it anyway. Now, that's great that I've, I've been lucky enough to get that. And I know that some people don't always get that. So while it's going, you know, I just keep my fingers crossed and hope that editors are going to like them enough to try to find a, a home. But in terms of genre, it's always hunting it's always hunting its home, and it never exactly finds it because I change. Each book is different from the last. I change. I'm a changing writer, and that's how it has to be. I don't know exactly what's going to come out of the next book or what kind of an exploration it's going to be, but it, it certainly ain't going to be like the one that went before. I, could, I couldn't be that kind of writer, and I don't want to be. I'm just lucky that I've got, you know, there are editors and readers and, and reviewers who give me loads of encouragement to continue on this this strange trajectory that I'm on. It seems a little bit that of late the mainstream fiction genre has come to have more fantastic elements incorporated, especially with the rise of magic realism. Yes, oh, definitely. I mean, that kind of was a word that made it respectable, that made fantasy respectable. I mean, ridiculous fig leaf, really, so that, you know, sophisticated people could have their fantasy. They have their fantasy novels. And I have I have been called a magical realist. I, I don't know. It doesn't sit quite right to me. I don't, you know, I imagine a magical realist somehow to be one of these, um, you know, uh, some South American writer with a farouche moustache, you know, and writing in Spanish. Great novels, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a wonderful writer. But, you know, it's not, it's not exactly what I do either. I'm kind of... I think 
I'm just an English weird or old peculiar, I've sometimes called it. But you're absolutely right. The mainstream these days is raiding the genres. They're spicing up their lives with science fiction, fantasy and horror elements in mainstream novels. And it's good to see. It's good to see that the formerly debased genres, if I can call them that, or the scorned or despised genres that that I've worked in and enjoy reading myself are forming so many of the elements of modern fiction. The crossover it has to be good for the art form. I just wish people weren't so snobbish about it, that's all. Tell us a little bit about some of the writers who maybe influenced you to start writing. When did you start writing and why, professionally or seriously? Well, I, I mean, I was certainly writing as a teenager. It was gibberish, but, you know, I was doing it. I, was, I had this habit of writing and reporting experiences. When it becomes serious, I don't know if you ever feel it really is serious until you sell your first story or novel, because you don't dare to call yourself a, a writer until you're properly published. And it doesn't seem fair to me. Um, a writer is a person who writes, whether they're published or not. But you don't like to you don't like to use the word about yourself if you're not if you're not published. So I never felt serious, or that I could take my writing seriously until I sold my first novel. And I didn't sell my first novel until I was in my early 30s. And what had happened, and though this was to take the writing seriously, is that I quit a very good job. And my wife quit her very good job. And we went down to live on a Greek island. And we lived in a shack. And I, I wrote. I spent the year writing, writing hard. And we had a glorious year and we had a great time, and we'd been living the Zorba life a little bit, and I was getting ready to come home. We were broke, and we were getting ready to return to England, and then the agent that I'd sent the novel to called me and said that he'd sold my very first book to Pan Macmillan. And this was a fairy tale ending to this story. This is what writers are supposed to do, quit their jobs, go down and live somewhere like that on a, in a shack on a beach, ha- hack out a novel, and get it published. And Nobody was more surprised than me that they actually accepted it and this fairy tale ending to the year in Greece had happened. So that was my first, I guess, time when I could seriously look at myself and think, well, could I could I be a novelist? You know, have I got another book in me? Have I got many books in me? The big learning curve was just about to start after I'd sold my first novel because the job just gets harder and harder. It doesn't get easier at all because your reach or your, your ambition gets longer and you get tougher with yourself about what you want to achieve and where your novels would like to be and each time you finish one you realize what a long drop it was from the perfect novel you had in your mind before you started it so you immediately start the next one in the in the impossible hunt for the perfect novel but that was the time when I first looked at myself and thought could I possibly have the makings of some kind of novelist you know and be published over over the period of years was back then. Tell us a little bit about some of the writers who inspired you. Okay, well, one of the very early figures was a British writer called Alan Garner. I don't know how familiar his name is to American listeners, but he had a success with some fantasy novels in the 1960s, and they were young adult novels. But Alan Garner was a very strange writer indeed. I mean, he's about 70 years old now, and he's written some wonderful stuff. But he's a very uncompromising figure. He also suffers from quite badly from bipolar disorder, which he found, if treated, just killed his writing. So he has chosen often to just suffer and write. But he went on from writing young adult novels to 
very much more challenging novels, which really should have been published as adult novels. They're far too difficult for for kids to read. But because of the success of his early books, they were wrongly published as young adult novels. And he and he had his vogue, and he came and went. But his stories astonished me, and so he was clearly an early influence. And from then on, I read. I started reading lots of stuff, and it wasn't just fantasy. I mean, I read Lord of the Rings years and years before. I never thought it would be made into a film. I read Lord of the Rings in the 1970s when it had a, a great fad among uh, young people in England. Everybody. And in the U.S. And in the U.S., probably at the same time. Um, it was was on the back of the whole hippie thing, right. Lord of the Rings, somehow, you know, Gandalf Scott and the rest of it. So there was all that stuff going on. There was a lot of science fiction like Frank Herbert's Dune. There was lots of that stuff. There was Mervyn Peake. Talk his, a little bit about Mervyn Peake. He's an interesting figure. He's a very interesting character. Another, another well, what would be called bipolar now, you know, or maybe he was schizophrenic. I don't know. I seem to be attracted to mad writers. <laughs> I don't know why that's... I'm going to have to think about what that means, because I've never thought about it before. But Mervyn, Mervyn Peake... Mervyn Peake was an astonishing character who... He was sent as a war illustrator, and, and he made lots of drawings of soldiers dead and alive, you know, and I think that clearly influenced his very dark sensibility. And he wrote the trilogy Gormenghast, but he never actually completed it because he went crazy and could never actually complete it. But it's a, a really rather extraordinary fantasy in which he creates another world which is clearly a satire of much of class-ridden British society and its bizarre, arcane rituals. And in this fantasy world, his his main character climbs from a, a humble position as a kitchen porter to become a ruler of Gormenghast and becomes as grotesque as the creatures that he's replaced. This is clearly a satire on British society. Tell us a little bit about some of the other authors, in particular an author who approaches, I think, the numinous, as do you, is Arthur Machen. Oh, Arthur Machen, yeah. I mean, the great god Pan. The great god Pan was certainly an influential piece. Again, a writer who's looking for the miraculous to just burst through for a moment and then retreat, and then he's these characters chasing it for the rest of their lives. A wonderful flamboyant figure who apparently used to walk up and down the passing the hedgerows of, of Wales with his cape flutter and his, his white hair in the wind. A, a really, really um, astonishing writer. But to update and talk about a, a writer who I think also does that very well, uh, one of my favourites would be M. John Harrison. He's written some very beautiful novels operating on the same basis. I liked Angela Carter a lot. She was often referred to as a magical realist, but was a, I don't know, she was an English, Gothic, something like that. Very fine literary writer. These are the the more contemporary influences. I, mean, I like J.G. Ballard stuff very much too. But, you know, in between that, those names that I've mentioned, I was very much influenced by many American writers, Hemingway, William Faulkner, the classic American writers. There was, I had a period when I just had to read everything American. When I was supposed to be reading Jane Austen at, at college, I was reading Jack Kerouac instead. It seemed to be much more fun. And so they've been very influential stylistically because, I, you know, from particularly from Hemingway, I got interested in the pared-down style and I understood why he was doing that and how, how hard you had to work at your prose to get there. So there's a wide range of literary writers writers and writers from the fantasy genre that have gone into the mix. We've been speaking with Graham Joyce. His newest book is The Limits of Enchantment. Thanks for talking to us, Graham. Thank you very much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.